everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Vayikra is titled Kedusha is in the Details and explores the way these laws try and elevate each of our most basic human functions, food intake, bodily functions, relationships, spaces of worship, and our use of time. Check out the Matan website for details about this year's summer program, Jack's Queens and Kings, which will run from June 25th until July 12th. We'll be delving into the roles of kings, governing powers, and advisors in Jewish texts and thought. Today's podcast has been dedicated by Esther Neberg in honor of the 22nd yardside of her brother, Nota David ben Yerachmiel. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Behar focuses entirely on the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, as well as laws pertaining to land and house sales and interest. This parsha will be the focus of today's episode. Parshat Bechukotai contains one of the Torah's cursing and blessing passages, which highlights the correlation between mitzvah observance and the blossoming of the land, and God forbid the inverse negative relationship. I just wanted to read a short passage from Rabbi Sachs where he speaks a little bit about the importance of these kinds of passages, and it connects to things we spoke about in past episodes. He says on page 411 of his Parsha book, all ancient covenants had treaty stipulations, including specification of reward for obedience and punishment in case of noncompliance. Most covenants, though, were between rulers of states. Unique to the Sinai covenant were the two parties. Never before had an entire nation been party to a covenant on the one hand, and never before had God bound himself to one nation. It was essential, therefore, that the promise of reward and the threat of punishment be sufficiently powerful to have an impact on the people as a whole, for it was they who bore responsibility for the fate of the nation. They had to secure the rule of law without relying on a liberty-restricting government to do it for them. Hence, the devastating, terrifying rhetoric of the curses. I just include this short passage to give us a little bit of insight into the sort of difficult uh, rhetoric that we see in in the second Parsha that we're reading this week. And the final section of the Parsha is a mix of laws pertaining to temple dedications, bow dedications based on human worth, laws of cherem, and the tithes, the masrot. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tamar Weissman, who was a licensed tour guide and has spent the last two decades teaching Tanakh and Israel studies. She is the author of Tribal Lands, the 12 Tribes of Israel and Their Ancestral Territories, and is currently writing about themes in the Book of Judges. She and her family practice sustainable agriculture on their farm in the Galil. Tamar was also part of our Women Writing series, episode 14, and we also spoke together about Parshat Achremot last year on episode 53. Tamar, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much, Yosefa. It's a real pleasure to be back. You know, when I was thinking about speaking about Shemitah, you were the first name that came to mind. And it's very much because of that, uh, the combination of everything I just read in that bio, of the sustainable farming, of uh, of your background really in general with the land of Israel and as a tour guide. And so we've, we've come here together today to speak about how Shemitah operates, both ideologically and also in practice. Of course, last year was the Shemitah year. This year uh, is not there. But I think also it's interesting to hear from you having had, let's say, 
some time to reflect on the way that that Shemitah went, which I believe that was your first Shemitah in this in this new chapter of of life. Absolutely, it's it's interesting. I, the first time that I uh, spent significant time in Israel was a Shnat Shemitah. Um, that was a, a gap year program, and then since every iteration of Shemitah has been slightly different. I think this one has been the most different, the most impactful. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm especially excited because we get the chance to talk about Shemitah during the month of ER. Uh, on our Moshav, we have a series of shiurim for every Rosh Chodesh. And um, in this series where we tie in the Shevet the tribe that is associated with a specific month. And with this month, Iyar, it happens to be that the tribe that is associated with Iyar is Issachar. And Issachar is identified as the Jewish farmer and by, by Rav Shamshin Rufal Hirsch. He's called the Jewish farmer and the Ben Torah uh, by Rav Hirsch. And so it really is a special pleasure to be able to discuss the underlying concepts of what it means to, at least in my limited experience and my family's limited experience, to be involved in agriculture in Eretz Israel, especially around the issues of Shemitah, and to discuss them with you during this month of Yisachar, the month of ER. So Amazing. thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You know, we spoke a lot in these past episodes for Vaikra about all these stipulations that God puts on man, right? Regulating all of their their functions in the world, the way man interacts with the world. And there's quite a shift that happens in this Parsha where the regulation seems to be somewhat connected to what man does, but it's also connected to what the, the land does. And maybe maybe we could start with that point about what who who is Shemitah connected to? Meaning who's the focus of these uh, of these laws? Who who is it regulating essentially? Absolutely. It's a strange formulation that we see over and over again, starting in the beginning of Parshat Bahar, where it doesn't really seem that this mitzvah is a man-oriented mitzvah. Uh, it seems that it is entirely land-oriented, which opens up this really critical question. Uh, what is Ishmita in concept asking us as humans to seize activity on the land, us as Jews specifically, to seize working the land? Or is it a call for the active rest of the land? So if we were to look at some of the psukim, one of the opening psukim in Parshat Bahar, which is a very important pasuk in establishing this concept, we read Vishavtaha Aretz. Shabbat Hashem. That means that the, and the land shall take a, a Sabbath, it shall take a, a Shabbat. It is a Shabbat for God. And then we'll see again in Bihar. In the seventh year, this should be an extreme sabbatical, so to speak, a Shabbat Shabbaton for the land. Again, a Shabbat for Hashem. We don't here see a, a, a clear formulation of where man enters into the picture. And these, these are two examples of a number of psukim that really puts the focus of rest, the maybe um, the onus of rest on the land itself. And it is on this first pasuk, the Shavtaha Aretz, Shabbat Hashem, which again is with, with the uh, pasuk with which Bahar opens, that Rambam 
sees as the source for the positive command, the mitzvah asay, to observe Shemitah. So we let me let me just uh, give a little bit of background here. We're not in this time that we have going to be going delving into the myriad halachot dealing with Shemitah, but most of what we're familiar with as uh, as Shemitah observance are a lot of thou shalt not. For instance, you are one is not allowed to do anything to encourage plant growth, like zmirah. Zmirah means pruning or zriah or planting seeds. In addition, you can't do anything related to harvest, whether it's harvesting annuals, that's kitzirah, or perennials, that's bitzirah. Um, so these are a whole long list of things that you are not allowed to do. But um, Rav Rimon, in his, uh, at least in the, the, the Hebrew version of his Sefer on Shemitah, calls our attention uh, to the question of if Shemitah is just an issue of thou shalt not, all of the lavin, or whether there is also an element that is thou shalt, a mitzvah asay. And he points us to the Rambam's uh, Sefer HaMitzvot, the Rambam's organization of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah, and then his subsequent Mishnah Torah, his compendium of Jewish law, uh, where this particular mitzvah, mitzvah asay, is discussed, and the pin, the language in the Torah for the mitzvah, is here in Parshat Bahar, v'shavtah ha'aretz Shabbat Hashem. So the way that the Rambam puts it, is that mitzvah asay lishpot me'avodat ha'aretz. We have a positive command to rest from performing agricultural work or any work with trees in the Shnat Shemitah. And what is our source for this? Vishavta ha'aretz Shabbat Hashem, And the land will rest like a Shabbat onto Hashem. So, okay. So here we have a, a whole number of mitzvot lotase related to Shemitah. And we have a positive command to actively, it would seem, to, to rest from performing any kind of agricultural work. So what does this mean that we have a command? We are meant to actively rest. Is it just to add another element of a prohibition to working the land such that working the land would mean if I were to work the land during Shemitah, if I were to go plant cabbage during not Shemitah, then I would transgress not only all of the Lotase, all of the lavin, thou shalt not, but also an ase. So it would add another level of stringency to the whole mitzvah. Is that what we're dealing with here? Or perhaps is there another element involved? Yeah, totally. I mean, obviously, the it brings up the very uh, clear and intentional association with Shabbat itself, which you have both the things you can do, but you also have the sum total of the experience that's created by actually refraining from doing work. Meaning all of us, we actually touched upon this in the episode on, on Parshat and more, where the the act of not doing work or of self-restraint is more than the absence of something. It creates it creates an entity, and that entity perhaps is focused, right? That entity is perhaps a connection that wouldn't be able to be there without the cessation. So I, I feel like it it's sort of dancing a, along a similar line here. Obviously, it's a halacha question at hand of who's responsible if someone does, mm-hmm. if someone abrogates that law, but it's also perhaps coming to create a certain experience that would only be able to be created 
if we refrain from certain things. So the question is, what does it create? Meaning what kind of experience is, is this cessation uh, actually bringing in, into the world? Right. And is this meant to refine something within us, right? To somehow improve our understanding of of, of God, our understanding of the value of Eretz Israel, because obviously the imperative is on man to seize from working the land. We are the only ones who can see that imperative through. Land is a, not an entity that can, can be commanded to perform a mitzvah. Right? However, so, though, I'll interrupt you in your sentence. Not so long ago, Sefer Veikra said that the land of Israel will spit us out. So meaning we're also, while this is a halachic passage, it's not like it's the first time that the that the land of Israel might be attributed anthropomorphic qualities, right? So it's not absolutely. that far off. Right. And and it is to that very uh, dynamic, that dynamism that, that, that we are attributing to land that I would like to, to tease out more. And I, I would like to also suggest that it is not necessarily um, an imperative only upon, it is, it is definitely an imperative upon us to seize from working the land. But in understanding this mitzvah assay, we have this other, another element that it is not just a Jew who must abstain from working the land. It's that the land itself cannot be worked by anyone. This is a, a halakha that's actually introduced as it, within the perush of the Ibn Ezra. It's, it's based in the Talmud. But the Shavtaha Aret Shabbat Hashem, that we as Jews have a mitzvah. What is this mitzvah that we should, we should positively keep seeing the land rest? We should not allow anyone else to work the land. We shouldn't hire someone to work the land. So what does this mean? That means that the land itself must abstain from work. It, it's not enough for me to develop a sensitivity to the land and to its rhythms by abstaining from work. We have to make sure that the land itself ceases from work. So that kind of um, uh, leads us more in that direction of, as you described it, seeing the land with anthropomorphic qualities. The, the lavin, all of the lotases constitute what we call an abodad hagavra, which means that people aren't allowed to work the land. Whereas I really do think that it's it's a, it's a possibility here that vishavta haaretz, the positive command of, of shemitah, constitutes an imperative that the land rest, unrelated to who might be working the land. So it's that uh, kind of surprising and exciting. Um, element that I'd like to explore more. What's the purpose? Is it just to reflect God's control over the land? Is it, is it something environmental? What, what's the advantage of having the land rest? I mean, we do have certain knowledge from, you know, farming techniques and letting land lie fallow, but I have a sense mm -hmm. that in the book of Acre, that's not really what the Torah is getting at. It's just like an agricultural tip, right? I have a, <laughs> the, all the Sukim <laughs> suggested it's, some, it's something a little bit deeper than Farmer's that. Almanac, right? That's another, another yeah. name for um, it's clearly not an environmental imperative uh, because Shemitah is an, is, is an Eretz Yisrael bound mitzvah. Yeah. Uh, the formulation in Halakha is very clear in Chovata Min HaTorah Ela Be'Eretz Yisrael. So if, if the mitzvah was about sensitizing ourselves to the needs of the land, then why wouldn't we be bound to do so wherever our farms may be with, throughout the world? Yeah. Right? There is there's something very specific about the need for Eretz Yisrael to rest. In addition, the Chazanish even, even gives a psaq that it's a sword to keep Shemitah 
outside of Eretz Israel. I know that there are experimental farms, uh, I don't know, throughout America, but there are some, uh, at least in the Northeast of America, uh, and if they would follow the halachic decision of the Chazanish, then they would not be allowed to keep Shemitah. Uh, so it seems at this point, perhaps to be more than a, more than a means for a Jew to refine himself by abstaining from working the land, because it is both not relevant to uh, to agriculture outside of Eretz Israel, and also it is, as, as I pointed out, a sore for him to, uh, for, for any Jew here, to hire um, a Gentile to work the land in his place. Mm -hmm. So it, it does indicate that there's a special imperative for Eretz Israel to keep a Shabbat. And Vishafta Haaretz, Shabbat Hashem, while in a way removing man from the equation, kind of ropes us in because we are the caretakers of ensuring that that happen. And so it's that really curious, really surprising and exciting piece that I'd like to talk about now, that why does Eretz Israel require a Shabbat? And it's not necessarily that we have to sensitize ourselves to the land, it's that the land itself requires that cessation of work. It might be that I am passively fulfilling my positive commandment to observe Shemitah by not harvesting anything, by not planting anything, by not pruning anything. That is possible. Or, or we could perhaps choose to take on the mitzvah of joining Eretz Yisrael in her state of rest. And by here, I don't mean necessarily timing your sabbatical year to coincide with the Shnat Shemitah, but in the sense of delving deep into what Kiddushat Haaretz, the holiness of the land, might mean independent of our active involvement in making it productive. So what does that mean practically? I'm trying to understand, right? So how does that look? I'll tell you how it looks for me. And I think it, it would look different for everyone in their own um, particular situation. I see this in, the, in a sense as being prime time to engage in what in what Albert Einstein called holy curiosity. This is when our holy curiosity comes into play, where we can actively observe what might be called the quote unquote nature of nature without uh, the human interference that we're so used to, the human interference that is built into our very DNA of the kivshuha, of our, of our drive to make the land produce and to see our sustenance from the land. The Shemitah can be a time of actively observing the how nature works absent mankind and to engage our faculties of holy curiosity. And what I mean by that, to expand on that a little bit, is when we have a demand from this mitzvah say that we that we seize from conventional agricultural work, right? Like if, if we always have defined conventional agriculture as our working the land, as our interacting with the land, as our, as our um, making the land produce for us, and we seize from that, then we can put thought perhaps into getting creative with the potential of the land, either looking very closely at how the land works or looking closely at how we can kind of, in a way, circumvent what is 
what halacha defines as agricultural work. And here I'll talk about uh, our own experience. And I, I don't necessarily know that this is unique for us, at least to the Shnat Shemitah. It's very much um, the, the vision of, um, of the kind of agriculture and farming that at least my, my husband Ira is very heavily engaged in. And I like to uh, putter around and, and, and uh, play a smaller role in, which is that if you take a moment and in perhaps not necessarily, it, maybe use Shemitah as this opportunity to observe all of the thousands of variables within nature and how they act without our interference on their own, how Bria thrusts forward and, and moves without our interference and figure out how to harvest those ideas and put them to work for you, then you can perhaps, as, as Ira likes to put it when he has some time to wax poetic about it, could be the conductor of the symphony where you yourself aren't necessarily playing an instrument. I'm not taking up um, a, a tractor and backhoe and, and uh, plowing the land, but you oversee in a way a grand enterprise. I'll put it a little bit poetically here, coaxing forth gorgeous harmony by first educating yourself about what works well together and what new surprising harmonies can be found in interactions that you might not have considered without such an education, um, as opposed to just doing things the way that they ha you have always been doing. Um, you can educate ourselves as to how to live in more consistent harmony with our environment. And perhaps that is one way to observe the, the, the imperative of the Shaftaharats. Let me give you some concrete examples. Wait, hold, wait, wait, uh, bef wait, before you do that, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding you. That mm -hmm. basically you're saying that we have the, the Isurim, the prohibitions, but that you think that the commandment to fulfill the Shemitah year essentially means something else other than the some fulfillment of the, the cessation of activity. From what I'm understanding from what you're saying is that this is sort of like a year of mindful connectiveness with the land and that may be just observing the way that nature functions. And it may even be observing to then build up a plan for what you might want to do with the land in the next seven years. But it's taking time to observe and to sort of be in focus with the land without interfering with the way it functions, right? And that's how you're understanding the positive commandment yes. of Shemitah. I'm, that's how I'm, I'm suggesting it might be one way to be a more active participant in the positive commandment of Shemitah. Okay. I'm going to suggest some, some, some entirely random things that I've tried to implement within uh, Shemitah and in general um, that, um, that we have as the underlying foundations of sustainable agriculture and, um, and how we try to, as minimally as possible, interact not only with the land, but with the animals that populate the land. First, how, how, is, my, how is my Shemitah observed? And second, secondly, how might others, some suggestions perhaps as to how to be more mindful about nature. By nature, I mean Bria, meaning the world that exists outside of only the nature of, of human interaction and humanity ourselves. So one thing that, um, that it, Shnat Shemitah allowed us to do was to put much more focus on our animals because that in, that is an element of farming that exists outside of uh, of the the strictures of not working the land, and so uh, this was really a time for us personally to develop that side of our farm and the way that uh, we raise our our poultry specifically is in harmony with the land. 
So we have a free range um, poultry flock here of, of quail, turkey, and chickens. And um, it has been really interesting just to even take, and I haven't done this very often, but I, I did spend some time just sitting out there and watching them forage and watching how the land is impacted by their interaction with it. Uh, that's not something that, that modern farming takes too seriously. But it's very much what I would say in, in, in line with Shemitah principles, right? In line with the idea yeah. of allowing for uh, nature to do its thing, so to speak, right? And definitely helping it along where we can. We, as we are conductors of that symphony, um, it's not that I let my chicken out uh, into the wild because it would uh, definitely be eaten by my dog, but I have to make sure to be to maintain the the chicken's health and its life and 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 to make sure that it stays well. So I am the caretaker of that of that animal, and then I will consume the animal where we we eat our our protein sources here um, because we see that as part of being involved in bria being involved and in tune with natural law. But I'd like to see that whole process, which we do see it on our farm from incubation of the egg that was laid uh, by our chickens through the proper growth of that chicken and care and feeding of that chicken to the compassionate slaughter of the animal. And then hopefully that the really tasty preparation of the bird and the eggs as well. And, and um, who knows in the future, maybe we'll branch out to other animals. But that is something that I think it not only it, does my personal life situation allow me to be more sensitive to, but I think we can all to a certain degree sensitize ourselves to. There was a really nice experience that we had here where there were a number of people who came up before Thanksgiving um, this was not of the Shemitah year. This was just this past thanks, this past Thanksgiving, which is post Shemitah, and they um, chose their birds. They chose their turkeys. They went through the process with Ira of proper shchita and of kisoi hadam and of looking at their birds and of and of seeing how their birds had lived, what I think are are lovely lives that we were able to give them, and that to me is an intimate engagement with the with our nourishment with the food that we take in with the food that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has provided for us with the with with the other creatures in this world that so often and I'm speaking very much uh, from personal experience up until very recently I had very little truck with I had no interaction with um, with animals beyond what I would purchase in my supermarket so um, that's been one personal um, way that an example of what I mean by kind of tuning in to natural cycle. Right. Well, I think that obviously that's a very powerful experience to have when, when you're growing and living in that kind of sustainable lifestyle. And I'm thinking even for people for whom that's not their reality, nor will it be, that the same concept can be translated into somebody who goes on to Lim, right? They go on nature hikes in their year of Shemitah, meaning possibly what you're suggesting is that the positive fulfillment of Shemitah is to go on those hikes, I, I think this is a good practice always, right? But particularly in the Shemitah year, is to take to take special interest in, in nature, in the way that the land functions and the harmony or sometimes a disharmony that's created either naturally or because of human interference, that that might be in the year of Shemitah a particularly meaningful practice to bring this positive mitzvah of Veshavta Aaretz into, into someone's life. Something that I never thought I would do uh, was to to grow a plant 
right? Now, obviously, it has to be done within the strictures of Hochot Shemitah. But for those who have never, who, who see themselves, as I had mentioned to you, Yosef, earlier, I saw myself as always having a black thumb and, you know, all of my herbs were, were purchased in plastic bags from the grocery. You know, we, 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 might, we might surprise ourselves in our sensitivity and, our, and, and even our appreciation and eventual, eventually perhaps love of Bria, of the world that God has presented to us as infinite in its beauty and in its benefit to us if we sit and actively listen, and by active listening, I mean as well as you said, go out on the tiulim and just absorb and listen and learn. Before we close the conversation, I wanted to go back to one point and make sure that we sort of get to its depth. We asked earlier this point about what possibly could be the the obligation on the land itself, that the language really suggests that it's not only, we've focused a lot on what could we as people, right? And I just want to go back to that point about the land itself, because it's bringing up for me an idea that we have been thinking about in these episodes on Vaikra, just like Am Yisrael is the, are, are the people who are meant to live as sort of like a higher spiritual tension uh, than the rest of the world because of these commandments that we have. Above them are the priests who they themselves have additional stipulations that they have to listen to because they are living at an even higher level of sort of a spiritual tension in their life. And I'm curious if you what you think about the idea that maybe this also relates to Shemitah because it sounds like the concept of Shemitah, should it really be relevant to all of the world possibly, but we're using Eretz Yisrael as a paradigmatic example. I'm still trying to understand why Eretz Yisrael specifically. Is it simply because it's God's land and therefore they're in like, it's in a totally different category? Or do we look at Eretz Yisrael as sort of an example for the way that ideally we should interact? Again, it's not a commandment, but that all people should interact with the places that they live in, meaning that once every few years, they really should take time to sort of observe, to be in harmony with, to be mindful about. Are we looking at Eretz Yisrael as an example, a paradigm for the rest of the world, or is it something very specifically unique to Eretz Yisrael? Is that, is that question clear? I'm trying, I'm still... It is very, it is very clear. Yeah. It's very clear to me. And I think that the Ramban addresses that exact question. I'm directing our shared focus to Dvarim, to the 11th parak of Dvarim, uh, where the we have the formulation in the Psukim that the land of Israel is different than the land of Mitzrayim, lo keretz Mitzrayim he, right? Mm-hmm. This is a, these are very famous verses. And that is followed by um, a declaration about the land of Israel as as um, being a land that God is constantly seeking out. Eretz asher Hashem alokecha doresh ota, tamid enei Hashem alokecha ba. This is the land that God is constantly searching out and seeking out, the way that we seek out a lover, the way that we always want to have a date night with our spouses and want to connect with friends because it is a land that that God himself Kiviachol connects to, whatever that may mean. Uh, these words sound, ring, ring, um, ring, they're redolent with, deeper meaning, but I'm not able to articulate exactly what that means. The eyes of God are constantly on her. On her. And Ramban there, in his, in his commentary, says that um, God is constantly seeking out the land of Israel uh, more than any other land. Um, it's as if God is only seeking out her welfare in the same way that 
um, we hope that you know our when we our relationships with our spouses, we are always looking for what is what is best for them and them alone, and and cherishing that unique relationship. He goes on to say though that al yidei otad doresh ota doresh kol haartzot. It is as exactly as you said, Yosefa, that it is through the uh, paradigm of relating to Eretz Yisrael that God then will expand and care for the entirety of the world. V'yeshba sod amok. I mean, you know, you know, I know I'm, I'm way out of my pay grade. I'm way out of my league. Whenever Ramban says V'yeshba sod amok, I, I keep on, you know, I just, I'm tempted to stop there um, whenever he calls on uh, that gem, that here we have a, a foundational uh, um, truth, a foundational concept, that this land is sought out by everyone and it forms everything. Um, it, it's, it's almost like that, that platonic form, right, of what a land should be. And then he goes on to end, and all other lands kind of are, are um, impacted in a way, uh, the welfare of those lands are impacted through the welfare of Eretz Israel. Maybe it is a straightforward uh, answer to the, the excellent question that you asked, at least according to the Ramban, it seems that Eretz Israel is meant to stand as, uh, as, as an exemplar, as the, the chosen at land, as Am Yisrael is the chosen people, Eretz Yisrael is the chosen land, and our rest from our allowing Eretz Yisrael to rest, and God's seeking out that rest is something that we can't. The principles of which, or the concepts of which, should be um, embraced throughout the world by all of mankind, but the specific practice of which. It should be limited to Eretz Israel, just like uh, a non-Jew is not permitted to observe Shabbat. So too, uh, a land outside of Eretz Israel is in a way not permitted a Shabbat. And so, but then again, we use the our, our sanctification of time, Shabbat, and place Eretz Israel through Shemitah to learn important lessons. Uh, for the, that should be applied throughout the rest of the world and, and by all of mankind. You know, it reminds me very much of uh, one of the many theologies of chosenness is that God loves Am Yisrael, but that love is supposed to spill out into the other into the other nations, the rest of the people in the world. And I think that that Ramban, which I really appreciate you bringing our attention to, really reflects a similar idea. And I think that just like Shabbat. We, we run the exact same risks. You can focus just on the things you can't do, and then it becomes a fairly superficial and also sometimes just prohibitive in like an annoying way kind of mm-hmm. mitzvah. At, or, or you can choose to sort of see beyond that, elevate beyond, which you're saying is clearly the point also, right? You're not, not to get stuck sort of in the quagmire of all the things you can't do, which is, of course, even much more dramatic for the actual farmer in the field than those of us just buying food from the supermarket, is not to mm-hmm. get stuck in the quagmire of the cessation, but to say, well, what is the element that the cessation is creating in in life now? And what am I supposed to be taking from this? You know, how can I 
put myself, how can I, how can I sort of surf above the, uh, the cessation of, and then see what's actually being created by the fact that, that I'm no longer performing those milachot. And I, I think that, and again, I believe I, I mentioned also this in the Emor episode in a totally different context of the Chagim, but I think that that's ultimately where we're supposed to be holding. If we get stuck in the prohibitions of the Torah, again, self-restraint is very important, but it's really only one dimension of the experience. And the question is always, what am I actively doing? Or what do those, what is that self-restraint? What qualities does it create? What does it cultivate in my life? What does it cultivate in my relationship with God? And I think that you've brought some really wonderful examples today of the things, the elements, the the, the qualities of our life that the positive commandment of Shemitah can really help us cultivate. Absolutely. And, and just to round off what you really formulated so clearly and very beautifully, the abstinence alone does not the experience make. And there's the, the, the whole other element that we, that we want in our lives. And just as uh, we don't want Shabbat to be a series of thou shalt nots, but we want to have Shabbat be a time of creativity and uh, creativity in the sense of creative thought, in the sense of reflection and thoughtfulness and, and, and deep, profound discussion. And we want that to impact the entire week. So too, we want our, ideally our Shemitah experience to not just be, okay, let's haul out that, you know, the little peel box for our kitchens and uh, review all of the halachot of Shemitah, but um, let's see how it can impact the rest of the six-year cycle. Maybe I'll take the composting that I introduced in Shemitah and carry it forth so that I'll have, you know, wonderful hummus to, uh, not the kind we eat, but the, the, the hummus of the earth, uh, the composted earth to help my grow beds of that, that plant that I planted on Shemitah. Tamar, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. This episode brings our series on Vaikra to a close, and what a journey it has been. I am moved each year anew by the bounty of topics, the people and ideas I and we all have had the opportunity to engage with, and how much I look forward to next year's conversation so we can touch upon new ideas that didn't make it into this cycle. Stay tuned for our next series on Bamidbar titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode of this series explores the way the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. Finally, several Bamidbar episodes are still available for sponsorship. Contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il for more details. And please share these episodes and our podcast feed with friends and family so we can keep growing our listener base. See you in Bamidbar and have a Shabbat Shalom. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.